Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 42 of The Pick List, the season finale. How has your week been so far? Hello, Laura. I can't believe this is the final episode of season three already. I had a very good week. Thank you. I've actually had quite a few articles go live and be published uh, this week. I wrote the lead feature for the grocers. Uh, Britain's Biggest Brands Special this year. So that's just come out in uh, the most recent edition. And I've also had a big white paper on traceability and transparent supply chains after COVID go live on the Gracer as well. What have you been up to? A busy week for me. I'm planning for Sunday night, which probably doesn't sound too exciting, but I was supposed to be flying up to Australia today. So instead, I will be here in my spare bedroom uh, at half 11 at night being keynote speaker at Beef Australia. So uh, very much looking forward to that and telling them all things Meet Business Women and Global Meat Alliance. That sounds very exciting. I'm gutted for you that you didn't get to um, actually travel out there. But uh, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be a really good event. Thank you. Next time, I keep saying. Um, Because it's the end of season three, I think we should just say a huge thank you to all of our listeners. It's fantastic, the feedback that we have from our listeners. And thank you so much for sticking with us and supporting us. We love getting your feedback. And um, whilst we take a pause between uh, seasons, please do follow us on LinkedIn, uh, the Picklist podcast. Uh, We we, uh, love hearing what you're up to and uh, seeing your shared content. Yes, absolutely. And and just to echo that, huge thank you to all of our guests as well. It's been fantastic to um, have so many great figures from the industry share their picks with us and, uh, and join us for our weekly discussions. Uh, we've got loads and loads of people interested in joining us for season four already, which will be kicking off in September. So we're super excited to um, plan for, for the next season already. And before we say goodbye, we've got another fantastic show this week, haven't we? Yes, we have indeed. We're going out with a bang. We're joined this week by Andy Knepfine, who is Group Marketing Director at Cranswig. And a very meaty conversation, as you might expect, uh, with someone, two people from the meat industry on the show. We talked about uh, the boom in corned beef consumption here in the UK with younger shoppers moving into the category. We talked about inflation and changes to working patterns. Um, and a new crop of challenger brands trying to make pantry staples more exciting and much more. Should we start the show? Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Julia. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me this evening. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are, what you do and how you're connected to the food industry? So I'm Andy Napthine. I'm Group Marketing Director for Cranswick. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Cranswick are a large fresh food producer based in the UK, famous for pork, but actually much bigger than than pork production. Um, We are fully vertically integrated on pigs and poultry, but also have a a wide range of other businesses, including um, continental meats, olives and antipasti, 
um, and a gourmet pastry business as well. So certainly covering a wide area of the uh, of the, the fresh food market within the UK. Um, my uh, involvement with the food industry goes back a long time. My parents owned three spa franchises um, back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s. Um, I was brought up in Devon. I remember reading copies of The Grocer or certainly flicking through copies of The Grocer from about the age of 10 and, uh, and always had a, a sort of love for food industry. Um, I imagined I'd end up in the, uh, in the retail world, but um, university and placement year with United Biscuits showed me the other side, the supply side, and uh, here I am too many years to remember or too many years to think about, uh, sat still in the food industry, but certainly um, not quite where I expected back in, the, uh, back in the, the heady heights of being 10 years old. Absolutely. And I'm really pleased to say that actually, I think we are going to take you back to some of your convenience routes with uh, with, with one of your article choices a little bit later on as well. But, um, but first of all, we, we do like to um, ask our guests a little bit about what the past 12 months have been like for them, particularly working in the meat industry. You know, there's been a lot of pressure, a lot of scrutiny as well. Can you just give us a sense of what the past year has been like for you personally and for Cranswick? Yeah, well, I, th I think it's fair to say it's been a, a, a challenging year in, in different ways for everyone in the industry. Um, at Cranswick, we've had a, a, a very challenging um, 12 months. Uh, we have had the ups and downs of the, uh, you know, managing the retail demand, managing the, 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 the panic buying, absolutely, you know, managing the, uh, the, the impact of um, the uncertainty, I guess, in fresh food, especially how, how we, we dial up volumes and dial back volumes very quickly. Um, and it's been an absolutely phenomenal achievement right across the group in terms of our, our ability to, to service the retail trade and, and to you know, keep products on the shelves. And, and certainly everyone, everyone at Cranswick uh, has, has played a phenomenal role in this. Um, personally, uh, again, an, another challenging uh, 12 months. Uh, my, my role sort of splits a number of different areas within the, um, within the business. So one of my areas is about communications, both internal and external communications. So we did a huge amount of work all the way through the 12 months, making sure that we were um, putting the right measures in place to keep our colleagues safe at work, communicating that, making sure it was out there, the messages were out there. And, and really driving home the, all the safety measures we put in place for our, for our colleagues um, at, at site level, um, all the way through to you know, rewriting and rediscovering the, the, the five-year plan and how do we, as we start pulling out of, of COVID mark one, how does that actually, how does that pan out? And, and I have to say writing a five-year plan at the moment is... Um, is is fairly challenging in terms of uh, in terms of where the trends and, and where the where everything will level out. But um, yeah, as I say, a, a steep learning curve, but uh, a, a very broad, varied, and um, ultimately, you know, successful year, but not without its challenges on the way. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, as you know, the pick list is all about highlighting interesting articles from the world of food and drink. So we do want to quiz you on your reading habits a little bit as well. You already mentioned you started early, um, reading The Grocer at 10 years old. Tell us a bit about how you keep up to date with industry news nowadays. What publications do you read on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I'm sure you guys are the same, but you get absolutely bombarded with news feeds day in, day out. And and it's really difficult, I think, to, to keep abreast of that. So 
I mean, my, my go-to read, as as you know, and for for many many years now, has been uh, has been the grocer. Um, other other publications such as meat manufacture, food manufacture, really good just to get an, a, a view almost of the supply side of the uh, of the industry. Um, lots of the the news feeds come in from you know just food. Um, IGD actually the news feed there is is very good, but then the constant. Um, news feeds social media actually is is, is an interesting one and, and clearly uh, you get some polarizing views and and you navigate your way into into making your your own sort of decisions on on your beliefs and, and what you believe is really happening um, but actually linkedin is really really interesting in terms of understanding a being signaled towards other areas other other um industries that you might not always focus on but again getting that personal view of of what people are doing and and what impacts are, are affecting different industries. So, uh, so LinkedIn certainly as a uh, as a an observer rather than a, a, a big poster is uh, is is a, a big a big source of information for me. But you do get bombarded. I end up looking at the headlines, clicking on some articles, but a lot of it is headline skimming, unfortunately, rather than getting into the nitty gritty of of all of the issues there would be no time for work. <laughs> <laughs> Quite. But we are going to get into the nitty gritty of some issues so because we're going to talk about the first article you've picked for us. Tell us what you've chosen. The first article I have chosen um, was was in the Times, but it's been covered in, in various different, uh, different titles over the last few days. And the, the overall header was started on COVID inflation hits consumers but then went on to talk about as a task force advises on home working. And, and clearly this, this got me on, on the two different uh, issues on the headline. What I'm actually really going to talk about today is, is I guess, the, the take on home working and, and what impacts and what issues and opportunities that sort of raises for the, uh, for the food industry with, uh, with the hat on for the pick list tonight. And I think there's, there's, there's a couple of change. There's a couple of structural changes here that, that, will be interesting to see how they pan out. So I think there's the, for those that are working from home, um, clearly that changes the dynamic as to what they're going to eat at home, both actually all the time, breakfast, lunch and evening meal, because potentially people have more time to prepare food, um, that they're going to be seeking more variety and looking for, for you know, a, a broader repertoire but also thinking about, you know, an evening meal tonight could be a leftover tomorrow, but, or I've actually got some time to have a, a hot lunch now. You know, I read something recently, over 60% of lunches now often have a hot, hot element to them, which clearly you wouldn't be, would be more difficult in the, in the office or the factory environment. So I think there's a huge dynamic that we're, we're working through at the moment in terms of the trend and what does lunchtime in home look like? You know, we've seen significant growth in soup, eggs, um, beans. I think we've probably all read the, uh, the the brand story, which I know we'll talk about again later. But but that re rediscovery of of meals at home. So that, that's one area, and, and certainly as a as a in our retail teams, that that's a big challenge at the moment. How do how do we address and, and adapt that? I think the second piece then is about the, you know, how do all of those outlets, how do the out of home, the food to go, the, you know, the big, the, the Pretz, the Leons, et cetera, how, how are they gonna adapt their business model if, 
you know, if we move to this hybrid way of working two or three days a week in the office, two or three days a week at home, clearly, you know, there's, there's a potential risk of, of between 40 and 60 percent of the sales. So I think there's a real challenge in how they adapt the model, how they create inspiration for um, and, and loyalty for those con commuters that are going in. And actually, for those people that are going in, they might be willing to spend a little bit more out of home and trade up and treat themselves because instead of doing it five days a week, now they're doing it three days a week or even two days a week. So I think, I think that's a really interesting dynamic. And then the other bit for me is, can they tap into any of those home workers that are just getting a little bit bored with what they're doing at lunchtime? And again, we'll talk delivery apps later, but you know, does this open up a... A, a, an at-home treat for the for the midweek lunch occasion, and and how does that become part of their part of their business model as as they move forward? And then I'm conscious I'm talking a lot, but the third element for me on on this story was was about the you know for me and for a lot of my colleagues who are able to work from home, it, it, it's great because it gives you some flexibility, it gives you some headspace to get your head down and and really think and focus. But as we're starting to creep back towards the office and some of our sites, you know, you get back into the involvement and engagement and the, the, the sort of social side of, of work that you miss and just catching up and, and what's going on. I think one of the big challenges for the industry that we need to think about is probably 90, 95 percent, if not more, of those people involved in the food industry, whether that be in manufacturing or farming or warehouse and distribution or stores have no choice but to go into work. So, so in all of this, in all of those positives, one of my big concerns at the moment is in an industry that isn't always the easiest to recruit into, that working from home dynamic, which isn't feasible, could end up making the industry even less attractive because you don't have the option to work from home. You do have to be at the site or you do have to be in the store or you do have to be on the farm. And I think one of the dynamics in the industry that we need to look at is, is ensuring and adapting the workplaces and the packages around the workplaces to ensure that we're seen as, as attractive places to work. I totally agree. And I guess there's a danger it becomes us and them, doesn't it? Particularly over the last year where uh, office uh, folks and maybe more senior folks that haven't been on on a, on a line making food have been forced to work from home. It must have made others when the the car park's been half empty thinking, "Oh, it, it's us and them." Uh, the article was fascinating, and I hadn't seen it until, until you shared it, Andy. And one of the things that I was also interested in when the article covering the prospect survey or the the survey that Prospect had commissioned about understanding how many people wanted to stay working from home and how how many wanted to go work back to, to the office mostly and I was surprised 37% of people mostly wanted to go back and work in the office and that made me think I wonder if when you're at certain life stages and if you've maybe got kids at home and they're not at school yet or a nursery then actually getting to the office is a place of solitude where you can do work whereas actually maybe for some folks it works better if you're a longer distance and having that flexibility how important that is going forward and as you say for certain elements attractiveness into our sector which on occasions can be seen as one that's not particularly appealing unfortunately 
I was also really interested in what you were saying about um, you know, the, the changes to, to lunchtime cooking behavior. And we've talked about this quite a bit on, on the podcast. What have you seen in terms of how that plays out uh, for demand in a category like pork, for instance? Have you detected, have your retail teams detected demand for certain types of products has changed because there is more uh, interest in lunchtime cooking? Yeah, I think um, not not so much lunchtime cooking, actually, but the the the, the lunchtime assembly piece. So if I look at our continental meats and olives and antipasti business, the one of the big occasions we used to talk about was the, the picky tea. So on a Saturday night, um, you know, you'd, you'd just put everything out and, you know, the, the family around the table would just, you know, pick, pick the bits really. But now that that's becoming slightly more part of the midweek, let's, let's mix up the, the repertoire a bit. Let's, um, let's let's have something a little bit different and um, so th- so that's one example the the other big one we've seen is is with um with chicken so um they you know the the move to whole chickens now actually doing the the, the main meal plus the leftovers and 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 joints then being used for sandwiches and 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 that lunchtime occasion is has been a really big shift and a whole chicken offers a great value for money, versatile, good amount of um, good amount of food and good amount of protein. So you can see how consumers have, have taken the value, convenience and, and sort of food waste um, messages and put them all together, really, certainly with within the whole chickens. I'm a massive fan of a picky tea. So I'm glad glad you brought the terminology to the pick list. The only other thing I thought you were going to mention there, maybe because I'm fueling the demand for them or buying them, is sausage rolls. The temptation, just think, oh, I'll throw them in the basket because they'll be handy as either a snack in the afternoon or for lunch. And just the versatility of products like that is far too tempting. Yeah. And and actually, I I completely agree on the sausage rolls. The other one, obviously, I've missed, Julia, is... um, the, the resurgence of the cooked breakfast or the brunch so sausage and bacon and and that absolute real treat and and sort of back to back to almost back to basics in terms of just wanting some different food and in, instead of maybe catering for you know 17 18 19 meals a week a lot of households have been having to cater for you know 21 meals a week and and suddenly that does create some some pressure certainly personally what we have in fatigue tonight becomes quite a, a monotonous uh, uh, question and something that you know we we're always trying to think of new things to eat and new things to uh, to, to put onto the table. So yeah, it's it's a really interesting time. Julia, what's your first pick this week? My first pick this week is from Eater, and it's an article titled Epicurious Stopped Publishing Beef Recipes to Encourage Sustainable Cooking. I always know how to make uh, people from the meat industry feel uncomfortable on this podcast, so this is certainly one of those articles, but I think it raises a really interesting set of issues that I'm super keen to to get your, your perspectives on. Briefly, by way of background, um, there is a lot of debate in the US at the moment about sustainable diets and the role of meat in sustainable diets. And in fact, there were reports uh, this week that Joe Biden, the US president, was looking at policies to encourage Americans to eat less meat and less beef in particular. Now, that is not actually 
what he is trying to do. Um, that's a, a line that was pushed rather heavily by his political opponents, the idea that, you know, Biden is trying to take away your, your beef burger. Uh, he isn't. But there is still a lot of focus on this debate about sustainable diets. And against this backdrop, we have news that Epicurious, which is a very popular recipe website, has decided to stop publishing beef recipes. What it said in a statement is, beef won't appear in new Epicurious recipes, articles or newsletters. It will not show up on our homepage. It will be absent from our Instagram feed. And it actually started phasing out new beef recipes a while ago, but it only announced the move this week um, in a blog post that also explained some of the thinking behind it. And you won't be surprised to hear that, you know, sort of environmental and, and sustainability concerns um, are a key motivating factor here. But what really caught my eye and the reason I wanted to discuss this with you is this idea of driving behavior change and pushing different choices at the inspiration stage. So we often talk about uh, changes to product ranges. We talk about how supermarkets are perhaps changing the amount of space they are making available for meat products versus uh, plant-based products. But here you have uh, an initiative that is trying to affect choice at a much earlier level. It's trying to reduce the desire for meat and for beef in particular um, by making it less visible, essentially. Now, as the article points out, there are still lots of beef recipes about, including on this particular recipe website. They're not deleting existing beef recipes. They are just not adding new ones. But it still strike me, strikes me as a really interesting new front in this debate that we're seeing around meat consumption. And I do wonder whether we're going to start seeing more publishers of food magazines, uh, recipe columns in newspapers, and recipe websites basically take a specific editorial stance around the types of food that they are willing to feature and therefore trying to create an appetite for. Andy, what did you make of this? And does this, as someone working in the meat industry, do you look at that and think, oh, I, I, that makes me worry that we might have something quite similar happen in the UK? Thanks, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming to me first. Um, and you're right. This raises a number of um, of very interesting uh, conversations, doesn't it? And you know, I, I think there's there's a huge amount. I'm not going to get into it today, but there's a huge amount that that needs to be said about the role of meat in a healthy, balanced, and sustainable diet. And actually, you know, whether that be beef, lamb, pork, or chicken, there's there's a role for it all. And when we start looking at the different systems, US versus UK, for example, there's, there's some big differences. But again, that, that, that's, that wasn't the question. And, and uh, it's, it's probably not one for, for this forum. Um, what's, what's really interesting here is that there has been a lot of noise around the role of meat in the media and certainly more and more, um, whether it's BBC Good Food magazine, whether it's... Um, you know the, the Daily Mail recipe sections in the uh, in the weekend magazine that there has been a move to really promoting plant-based taking meat out of the diet and and almost deselecting some of those go-to proteins um, but we're not necessarily seeing that translate into consumers absolutely moving away from meat um, 
and and again, I, I will I would go back to the the, the role of meat as part of a, a balanced, healthy, and, and sustainable diet. I think I think it's really interesting because with with an American recipe website taking beef off with the Americans being so so into their their beef and you know the per capita consumption of of beef is huge may actually backfire for them so and and the other thing is you've, you've made the point very very rightly they're not removing beef recipes they're just not promoting and adding new beef recipes there so there is a, there is still an option for people to go out and seek a beef recipe but i can imagine some americans would actually as would happen here almost removing my personal choice means that you know I, I want the choice. I don't necessarily want your editorial content pushed upon me. So, so actually, yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not actually too worried about that from a, you know, put my, put my meat industry hat on because, you know, the, there's lots of noise around plant. There is an opportunity for the industry to, to do more on the role of meat. But actually, it's about personal choice, and it's about having that breadth of products available um, for for consumers, and and you know, allowing people to have those personal choices. I'm glad Julia came to you first, Andy. It took the heat off me for a moment and let me collect my thoughts. To your question, Julia, I think. Um, you're right, I think we're going to see more and more pressure for, uh, coming from various angles uh, to stop eating as much meat or any meat. The, and those angles that I'm talking about include the United Nations, for example, the, the United Nations Food Systems Summit, which I'm working on at the moment, is coming down the track. And they, some of their um, work streams are very overt about actually we shouldn't be reducing meat consumption, we should be stopping it. Uh, and I think in time that pressure and pressure from other NGOs like Greenpeace will get onto retailers who will feel then that they should be pushing plant-based more, they should be reducing um, fixture space. But it's funny, isn't it? Because we've just come out of a year where actually we've eaten more meat than we've eaten for ages. Consumers are reconnected with the category. I attended the um, virtually, obviously, the American Meat Conference a fortnight ago. And a quote that I heard on that, which I scribbled down, said, when the tough gets going, the tough eat meat. And they're, they're so happy with, the, uh, with their sales figures. And, you know, they talked about that we need more inspiration and shoppers are basically buying anything and reconnecting but I think the weak spot in here for, for the meat industry is we haven't got a global voice and we're trying to work towards it and I'm involved with a bit of that through the Global Meat Alliance as you know but it's so easy for the meat industry to get picked off because we have we're so fragmented we run on as, as Andy's alluded to there a regional basis or a company basis and we try and protect our bit and and you always articulate really well Julia that the meat industry hasn't got a great brand it's hard to get hold of a, a face a name and whereas the meat free folks venture capitalists funded have got a very different outlook and, and a very different backing so yeah it's going to be interesting to see how it pans out because it's not what necessarily what the consumers want or <laughs> and it's it's interesting because some of the ahdb campaign uh, earlier this year did has actually stemmed a bit of the flow of, of negativity around meat and the role of meat in in the balanced diet and and i think for me it's how do we to your point laura how do we galvanize the industry to make those voices even louder and how do we we become a, a credible um, 
a, a credible voice um, as as we move forward. Uh, but it's it's not without its challenges, and you know that it, it's an easy it's relatively easy at the moment to uh, to knock the meat industry. So we do need to come out fighting and 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 reposition the role of of meat. And it's really interesting to hear both of your perspectives on it because, you know, one of the reasons I found this article so interesting, I think it's partly because there is that potential that um, some of these decisions are not visible. You know, in this case, you have a publisher making a public statement and, and, and saying we have chosen to deprioritize this. They have been doing that for a while and no one really had really noticed. So actually, there could be decisions being made here around visibility for, for certain proteins um, that are not communicated like this that affect consumer choice but might not might not be being debated openly and then to your point Laura about having that big global voice you know it's also about a lack of branding you know because I think about that sort of inspiration piece and if you potentially have less inspiration coming from food magazines, recipe websites, etc. You do need a really strong channel of communication with the consumer. And, you know, it's so much his own label. So does the meat industry have enough of a direct channel of communication to reach consumers and still get that message across? Um, it'll be very interesting to see. The only other thing I'll add, I think there'll be more pressure, not only the Food Systems Summit, but that's in Italy and New York, so we're not feeling it so much here, but COP26, and I know they're still organising, if that's virtual or in person, and they've pushed it back to November, but with that being in Glasgow, I think it'll really pressure some UK players, and we're seeing Sainsbury's as a principal partner of it, to, to make some decisions and, and make some claims to differentiate and to be seen to be a leader around it, and that could affect categories like meat. Laura, what's your first pick for us? So my first pick this week is a more positive one for the meat industry, <laughs> and it's from the grocer. And it's a corned beef sales sore thanks to the resurgence with millennials. And I just thought this was a fascinating one that I wanted to, to get your thoughts on. So it talks about old school corned beef has staged a resurgence amongst millennials and younger shoppers. And, and I am a bit of a corned beef fan, actually, but I haven't had corned beef for ages. So it did make me think, yeah, I probably need to, to get back into a bit of corned beef hash. But anyway, it talks about Kantar figures and it says uh, the sales of um, corned beef grew by almost 10 million, uh, up to uh, 83 million in the past year with growing um, high demand from shoppers between 28 and 44 years of age. And it talks about the resurgence of the canned meat category, which I found fascinating because we've spoken on the show previously about the growth of frozen, but we've never picked up on the whole canned meat category. But of course, people would be maybe filling the cupboards with that. And it grew by um, just over 24 million up to 155 million in the past year. Um, the article then also goes on to say about um, princes and recipe inspiration, which we've just been chatting about, really. And they say that corned beef hash was the most searched recipe on their website last year, with searches up 50% um, to, from uh, 2019, um, with around 2 million searches for looking at corned beef, which I just thought was absolutely uh, phenomenal. And then... Um, 
The article goes on to talk about the whole trend around nostalgia and comfort food. And I suppose particularly in the winter months as we went back into lockdown, and I do lose what number lockdown we're on, maybe lockdown three, whatever that was. Um, <laughs> we wanted to reconnect with, uh, with with different meals. And it talks about how social media has helped drive um, some of the engagement. And one of the things I know we do touch on, and Andy, I was keen to get your thoughts, because I know Cranswick are doing a lot on Instagram, which is fascinating. There's been brand partnerships with influencers such as Miguel Barclay, using Instagram as a hub for recipes to try and access younger shoppers and talk about how uh, you can be a one pound chef using things like corned beef. And then the article also goes on to talk about it's not just value. Uh, brands such as Helen Browning's um, 4 dollars uh, corned beef, so, so premium end, has also done really well as, uh, as traditionalists want to reconnect with the category and look at organic versions and the younger generation as well wanting to, to keep up with wonderful food. Andy, what do you think, first of all, I guess about nostalgia and meals and and I guess and we're still talking about meat here but that may be what that plays and then more generally about how you think Instagram's working because it's interesting that I see you guys are doing more and more which which looks great yeah it's interesting on the back of a negative meat article that we we do go straight into into something very positive and 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 I think um You've picked up, I found the article fascinating. And again, I think I've seen it picked up elsewhere as well in terms of in terms of that. Um, so the, the first one about uh, nostalgia and, and comfort eating, we have absolutely definitely seen in, in all of the key categories in Chilled um, over the last year. Um, you know, we've talked about it already, the, uh, you know, the, the, the resurgence of the cook breakfast, the roast dinners back on the table, um corned beef is 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 back and uh, and has been i guess not necessarily nostalgia but discovered by a whole new generation um and and i think it's it's that piece around um you know certainly in the in the case of corned beef affordable good quality protein that actually has some you know uh, it's known for corned beef hash, but when you start looking at Miguel Barclay, I'd, I'd looked at some of his stuff as a result of the article, actually. He is driving inspiration and tapping into that value for money perception. So again, that role of Instagram, which was, was, was the second point, is absolutely there to create interest and inspiration. And obviously, because it's very visual, I, I said already, didn't I, that you get bombarded with articles and you can't keep up, so you look at the headlines. Well, picture paints a thousand words doesn't it and 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 looking at food that's appetizing and um you know yummy looking is absolutely what instagram's about and you know it, it drives a, a an awareness of products and, and again we we use instagram a lot to to sort of not directly sell because obviously we're not a branded business but to to just get some of the products some of the categories some of the occasions front of mind and use it to show inspiration of new ways to, to serve dishes or remind people how to get the best pork crackling, which is always what we used to love as a roast dinner as kids. Pork crackling was the reason, but can you actually do it at home? It's it's giving the hints, tips and inspiration to do it and, and rediscover it. So a, a, a fascinating story. And, and again, the nostalgia piece, we've seen it in loads of categories, haven't we? Angel Delights had a massive resurgence and you know, all, all the way through, I think it's it's a reassurance 
and and an availability piece for for canned meats especially you know i remember first week of lockdown going into tesco last year and there was nothing you know nothing on the shelves at all the whole cooked canned meat aisle was empty and you know you you'd not seen that for years so it's it's that rediscovery of of, of convenient staples that that offer value for money that I, I, again I, I see as being here to stay. I think it's really interesting to see just how much comfort and nostalgia comes into play when there is a period of, of upheaval like the one that we've we've just been through. And to your point, Andy, it's it's interesting, isn't it, to kind of see just how polarizing the coverage around meat is. Um, at, at, at the moment, you know, we've obviously looked at a piece from uh, covering the UK and then something else from the US. But I think one of the really challenging um, aspects of, of how the meat industry is being reported on and covered at the moment is that you have polarizing trends and contradictory trends um, that I think in many cases are about something valid and about something legitimate that can be true at the same time. So you can have growing concern around meat consumption, growing concern around the uh, environmental impact of, of meat production. But you can also have record consumption and record sales and people turning to it for comfort. And I think it's about figuring out how you pick out the signals that are going to matter long term in that, you know, is is something like um, like plant based is something like, you know, a, a move away from beef recipes as in the previous article. Is that a blip? Is that something that's going to be temporary or will that translate into something bigger longer term? Certainly what you were saying about using social media channels like Instagram for, for inspiration, I think makes the point that even if you have some publishers, some more traditional publishers, some recipe websites making editorial decisions around inspiration, there are more channels now available than ever before for the meat industry or any, any food producer to try and create that engagement and speak to consumers directly and, and get that inspiration across. Um, I'm interested, though, that it's Princess here that's telling that story. It's a branded product. Um, I think it's, once again, just a little bit easier, I think, to, to forge that connection to, to consumers when you have that branded platform. As a final point on that, I think they would be able to fuel more growth if they got rid of the key on the corned beef tin and <laughs> had a different packaging solution. Because I'm always tempted, and then I think, oh, I'm just going to cut my finger open, aren't I? I'll leave it in the back of the cupboard. So, yeah, maybe that's the next thing. That'll fuel another uh, 13 million on top. <laughs> Andy, tell us about your second article for us. So my um, my second article, uh, the, the, I first saw it in the grocer, um, and it was about Justin King's investment in uh, in the Snappy app. Um, so for those people that may not be aware, the Snappy app is um, it's I, I guess another um, platform that engage that in, that offers the opportunity to have food and groceries delivered in in ultra quick time. Um, because you could, you know, you, you you need your Mars bar in the next ten minutes, and you can't go and get it. So, so that you know, it's it's that absolute. Don't need to leave the house. Get something delivered really quickly, and you know, it's 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 easy. And actually, this this model appears to be relatively low cost. And you know, there's I think I read in in one of the articles there's 
five or six of these have launched in the last 12 months and there's a test on the, the Wheezy app on the Gracefoot at the moment and, and how that delivered in, in the 15 minutes. It was all, all great and all, all hunky-dory. What I really like about the Snappy app, and I guess it takes me back to my childhood, is this actually is, is designed with the independence in mind. So, so actually, for those independent retailers that are serving their community and have had a role for, you know, take me back 30 years, and the, the role that the shops had in the community was phenomenal, obviously pre the hypermarkets and, and pre where, where we are now. But, but actually, those, those independent local retailers who have a relationship with the, with the community a local knowledge and an ability to understand the, the key trends that drive that neighbourhood now have the opportunity to tap into the digital trend and to offer the delivery within those, those 15 minutes up to an hour. And what's really interesting is the infrastructure's there, the staff are there, the stock's there. This isn't about building dark stores. It's not about faceless um, buildings it's about someone going onto an app having been into the store a couple of days ago knowing the staff in there being able to go on and say actually i need something the the retailer the operator is responsible for delivering the the, the goods themselves and providing the driver so that they manage the business still and they, they'll probably have the same faces that you see in the shop knocking at the door so again keeping that that sense of community and that sense of relationship but actually just giving them the independent sector a really easy way to get in on this whole um, this, this whole digital platform that would have been impossible for them to, uh, to, to tap into. So it's, for me, it's definitely one to watch. It, it doesn't charge the retailer anywhere near, the, it, it reportedly doesn't charge the retailer anywhere near the, you know, some of the, the established global players in the market. So it keeps the margin in there. There's a cost to the consumer, but we, we all know, you know, convenience often comes with cost. And I mean, for, for me, the, the final thing this does really is I, I wonder, I'm, I'm concerned how lazy everyone might get here because actually, is it that difficult to walk to a shop to buy what you need? <laughs> but but that's, that's a whole different point. But but for me, it was great because it was actually putting the local independent shop back at the heart of the community and, and providing a vital service. I think it's a brilliant article and it's interesting, as, as you say, the, the credibility, I guess, that, that Justin brings to joining the, the business and in investing within it. And I think you're right, the laziness factor and also, and I've spoken about on previous podcasts, you know, what are you actually buying? As you say, your Mars bar, but will we eventually move to something that's healthy rather than just bags and booze and chocolate, which, you know, that, that's what automatically springs to mind. The, the other piece in the article, which I was um, uh, interested by, is you pulled out there, there about the 3% that the charge, which is a lot cheaper commission than, than other apps. But also it talks about that there's three times greater spend uh, on the app than there is uh, in store, which I thought was fascinating. But, but it's so, it shows us where, you know, we're living in this Amazon generation where it's so much easier to think, yeah, I'll, I'll take, you know, these three extra items or wherever it may be. And actually for some of these local community stores, how great is that, that it's actually going to fuel more of uh, value through them than that they may be getting directly? I think there were sort of three things that really stood out to me. A, as we've said, you know, it's 
Justin King making that investment with the reputation, the credibility he has, you know, as Andy says, there are a lot of delivery platforms out there. So it's interesting to see whenever you have someone sort of starting to pick winners, if you will, um, or, or backing particular players. The second thing that I thought was interesting is that they're not actually going for the rapid delivery. So the sort of super, super, super ridiculous 10 minute, 15 minutes or whatever. I think it's an hour slot that they um, that they guarantee. And um, and there's a, a sort of a broader analysis piece on the growth. So with based on an interview with, with Justin King, where he sort of talks about um, that there isn't necessarily a requirement to go for these sort of super headline grabbing fast delivery speeds. So I wonder whether we're going to see a, a, a bit of a move back where people are thinking about um, reasonable and acceptable delivery speed as opposed to I need to make a headline, you know, by claiming that it's going to be five minutes or three minutes next. And and actually, Julia, that's a really interesting point because he he also went on to say, you know, with 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 the the malts and the grocery retailers, you, you're booking your slots a week or two weeks in advance for an hour slot. Whereas you, you know that idea of you have an hour slot but you can book it on the same day. You, like, most things you don't need in ten minutes, do you? Totally. I mean, I guess the challenge is when you have other players in the market offering ten minute delivery. Then suddenly an hour seems like quite a long time. So I guess it comes down to overall service service experience and also cost. And if there's a significant premium to get this within 10 minutes or 15 minutes, or you could pay a more reasonable fee and get it within an hour, I could see quite a few shoppers simply choosing to, to go with an hour, which is still very, very fast. The one question that it raised for me, and I don't know what you, what the two of you made of this, is I'm really interested to, to understand a little bit more how retailers manage their assortment and their availability, because managing omni-channel availability is, you know, really quite tricky. Having good visibility across what is currently in stock in your physical store and what you are making available um, through an app to be ordered online as well, and just making sure those those are matching up. I don't know how that works in, in in practice. I'd be interested to understand a little bit more how an app like that helps um, helps independents kind of keep track of who is buying what and marrying up what is happening with demand in a physical store and also online. It it it's a really interesting one, and, and clearly I'm no I'm no logistics expert, but. Yeah, one of the most frustrating things you have is you've ordered your online shop two weeks two weeks out. You wait for it; you, it arrives. You've ordered it for six o'clock that night because it's got your ingredients for dinner, and and then there's a substitution, or worse, there's just nothing in the basket. And and I think that that is a real challenge. And uh, what one one of the retailers I believe has an e- they email you beforehand to say what's not coming. Um, the retailer I use, I'm not going to name, um, they don't have that service or that offer. And, and it is really frustrating that you, you don't know what's not coming, uh, which actually taps into the Snappy app, because if I know it's not coming, I can get something delivered for that same hour. But but it does it does raise, I, I, I don't know what the solution is. Maybe, you know, do they put the whole assortment on there or do they just put the the top 100 or the top 150 SKUs or, or the top two per category that are almost never never going to sell out. And, and actually that, that sense of 
less is more sometimes so slightly less selection but i can get it when i need it and i know i'm going to get it will help them reputationally there's there's also for me nothing worse than when i do go back into a physical store um often on a sunday morning when it's you know i, I want to get in and out the amount of store staff pushing around the trolleys doing the home shop is can actually be quite can, can be quite challenging as well so it is how they manage the especially in a smaller independent store how they manage those you know real world customers versus their staff running around and and getting what they need to hit time slots so it, it will be interesting to see how it pans out but I, I, I think that that service and that communication around service is is something they just need to be uh, making sure they're mindful of. Julia what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is from Courier magazine, and it's an article from their April-May issue, which is all about food and drink. And the article is titled The New Staples, How and Why Brands Are Competing to Make Your Kitchen Pantry More Stylish. It's a super interesting article, and I really like Courier as a publication as well. Um, it's, it's a publication that's very much targeted at entrepreneurs and startups. And its coverage, therefore, is very practical. It's really hands-on. It gives readers tips and advice for how certain trends could affect them, how they can get involved with trends, what they can learn from what others in the market are doing. So a, a business-focused publication, but I think with quite a different approach to what we are typically used to within B2B, for instance. And I find they're very good at profiling and identifying interesting up-and-coming food and drink brands that are working at the cutting edge of the industry. So the brands we're talking about here are basically trying to shake up boring, I'm doing inverted commas, categories and essentials. So categories that perhaps haven't seen quite so much innovation, uh, quite so much NPD in general or investment in packaging and branding that are dominated by a few well-established brands and own label, but that are now seeing more activity from challenger brands trying to uh, shake up those categories. And this is driven, the article explains, by growing consumer interest in things like provenance, production standards, and just generally wanting to know where your food comes from, who produced it, what went in it, etc. And all of this is creating new opportunities for premiumization in categories that previously would have been considered unpremiumizable. Um, and it really made me think of Gaz from Holy Moly, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he talked about having early conversations with buyers about his premium guacamole, branded guacamole. And the feedback being, you know, this is not an, this is just not a category where you can do branded. This is not a category that's ever going to be premium. And, you know, he and his brand have, have shown that actually, if you have tangible consumer benefits if you explain to consumers what they're paying for you can create successful branded and successful premium propositions in these categories that perhaps previously would have deemed to be you know own label by default or non-premium by by default so some of the products that are featured in this article um, are really eye-catching really innovative there are a number of of craft vinegar brands, for instance, that are uh, really trying to capitalize on rising interest around uh, gut health and fermented foods. There's also milk and milk alternatives. 
Um, which initially made me kind of go, well, I think we've seen quite a bit of premium activity around milk alternatives, but they do identify some interesting dairy brands that are uh, trying to premiumize relatively heavily commoditized categories like liquid milk. So one of the examples is the Estate Dairy, which is a, a UK brand which has, you know, free range grazed cows and it is a brand that's trying to establish this idea of clean dairy. Um, so all in all, really, really interesting examples of innovation. Flour is another of the categories, cake mixes um, that, that are sort of seeing quite a bit of innovation. I guess the key challenge in all of this is always is, is price. Um, the article points out that many of these um, sort of staples and essential categories are very price driven. They are categories that consumers are not necessarily used to spending a lot of money on. So it's not just about creating compelling consumer benefits, but then also disrupting shopper journeys enough so that people who would you know normally just have been on autopilot buying into these categories are taking that moment to really take in you know a slightly more differentiated offering and and are in in the sort of right frame of mind to to discover more premium options in, in categories where they perhaps wouldn't have expected premium options to begin with andy what did you make of the article what products caught your eye it, it it was a it was a fascinating read and and certainly from a uh, a, a design point of view looking at the the the, the imagery and the, the the sort of cleanliness and the you know some beautiful design work there um was was you know really interesting and then reading the small print you know around some of the some of the benefits of some of the brands some of the messages some of the things they're standing for Interestingly, and probably not surprisingly, the estate dairy one especially took my mind, uh, took my eye because, you know, absolutely going straight into the, 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 the positives and, and sort of the, the, the pro-dairy uh, pro debates. Um, the other ones that really caught my eye were, were, were the baking ones, um, you know, the no-need bread, uh, bread-making kit, etc., and, and for me, um, you know, something like the bread making kit, there's a real obvious, easy to understand, tangible consumer benefit there without needing any explanation at all. So, you know, everyone watches Bake Off, everyone loves home baking, everyone loves the, the result of the home baking, but it's just a bit difficult. So actually something that's going to absolutely deliver something that I can still say I've made myself is really um, going to appeal to a lot of consumers. Overall, I felt the question I kept asking myself is, is, is the so what or the why? So why do I need these brands? Why, you know, what is it that these brands, what's the consumer benefit? What's in it for me if I buy into these brands? Because on, on pack, they look beautiful, but for, they, it, it just didn't engage me enough as to what my need is to buy these. And, and I think that that's one of the challenges in, in a lot of the categories where, where the, it's either going against your established norms because you think your belief is, is such on, on health and nutrition, or they're trying to encourage a completely new occasion. I just felt there needed to be a bit more, why, what's in it for me, help me out here. I, Laura, I don't know what your view was on that. 
I um, totally agree with you that the design was beautiful and some of those products and it reminded me, Julia, you picked a, a design museum article last week and how impactful that was. And I, I have also scribbled down the Doe Dealer. I thought that was a really punchy brand and I liked that. And it's sort of connecting you, you, you Sandy, you know, back to baking and how food can be an activity and it can be enjoyment and it can make you happy and it can be fun for the family. And I, I thought it was doing a good job of that. So I guess reconnecting with the role of packaging and then also um, just basic things like the shape of your product. I saw on some of the butter examples and like you, I went straight to the dairy. <laughs> I thought, what, what are they up to? And just, you know, traditional rolls of butter and looking at that rather than just the commoditized blocks so um, you're right, there would need to be messaging behind it. But when we're all just sort of scampering around the supermarket and I, I, I always challenge myself to think, don't let those wheels on that trolley stop. I'm always moving. So it needs to be an arm, arm's reach, some of that. I think, oh, yeah, give that a look and then maybe learn about it more after. But yeah, and, and I guess the, the fat gold and uh, oil one, I thought, again, was really punchy, impactful branding. But you're right, you need to give people the, the reason why. Otherwise, they'll buy it once and they won't come back. And that's what I've experienced. And I think it was the last week or the week before I was talking about Leon ketchup that I just happened to buy in Sainsbury's. Um, and now I'm totally addicted and it's on every single meal I'm eating uh, it costs £2.50 a bottle but I'm happy with that because it tastes great and I guess that's the bottom line isn't it the product needs to be fantastic as well as the, the packaging and the brand wrap around it Absolutely. And I think Andy's point is, is, is you know, is, is really well made. I think when you are operating in categories where consumers are just not necessarily looking for those premium options, I think the bar that you need to clear as a brand is potentially much higher because, yeah, you are, you're sort of, you're fighting against quite established patterns. Um, so I, I, I take your point. I, I think these brands in many cases look brilliant and, and I think they're putting forward really interesting stories but they're going to have to work really, really hard to make it into consumers' shopping repertoires and then actually stay there as well. Laura, what's your second pick for us? My second pick this week is from the Mail Online and it's uh, titled Where Have All the Waiters Gone? And it's a build from the article that was in uh, the FT a, a week earlier. And it talks about workers in the hospitality industry are thin on the ground. Um, and this is uh, really triggered by Pizza Express advertising a thousand jobs at, uh, over its 360 sites and talks about London in particular being a pinch point for hospitality workers, looking at uh, hourly rates uh, up to £15 an hour for waiters from £11 an hour. Um, it also gives a, a load of different examples in the article, which is fascinating to hear so many industry folks say about the challenges that they're having. One in particular, um, Fine Dining D&D &D London, are looking for 350 people across their 43 um, sites. And it also talks about it's not only front of house and waiters that there's a challenge to get resource, also chefs in London, traditionally on a salary around about 35k are now um, pushing for around 50k. Um, and it also gives an example in the article, which I really like, that one of the restaurateurs was trying to um, secure staff for an opening in June and thought they'd secured someone, but actually they'd found a job quicker and been gazumped. And that whole actually to be able to secure um, hospitality workers is really tough. 
Instagram, and we've spoken about it already on today's show, but has been flooded with um, the uh, uh, situations vacant, really, for um, folks to come and work at these different hospitality outlets when traditionally it would have been plates of food and the different products that they sell. They're trying to uh, attract workers that way. And the article also goes on to talk about the smaller restaurants have struggled to keep staff um, because of furlough has cost them uh, and they've had to start from scratch and go back to basics. Um, it talks about the reduced size of the workforce, particularly in London, European workers in particular, uh, when the second uh, wave struck have, have maybe gone back home and visa rules as well saying actually there, there could be a lot of opportunity for French workers to come in and, uh, and work in the UK but visa rules don't necessarily allow and then also if you're living within um, South East and in London you may be more particular about your commute you're not wanting to be on a, a long hike into the city centre anymore the other bit that I really like from the article is there's a north-south divide. I always feel the, the, the north gets a, um, a rough deal sometimes, as we know. We don't always get the tech and the cool apps and everything. But the good news is apparently there's a stronger loyalty in the north uh, and uh, there hasn't been so much churn for hospitality workers, chefs and waiters and gone elsewhere. They've maybe stuck with the the outlet that they originally worked at as, as and when it's reopened. So the bottom line is it's tough out there and it's something anecdotally I'm picking up from the food service sector as well that they are having to start from scratch, they are having to retrain folks and when they're actually getting flooded, particularly if you've got a decent outside area at the moment and folks are going and expecting great service at speed where they're left off with a brand new team, that, that that's really, really hard. Are you picking that up, I'm guessing, Andy, from food service? And is, is that actually, if some of these workers dropped into the, uh, um, I don't know, meat industry or more so into the supply industry to retail, do you think? Where have they gone? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it is literally trying to restart a whole industry from scratch. And I, I hadn't really clocked how how difficult that would be. Um, I mean, clearly, there's 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 no end of reports about that, you know, Brexit labour shortages and and it's been really big over the last couple of years in terms of the fruit pickers and the impact it has on seasonal workers and and them coming in um, the meat industry. We, you know, we get we get talked a lot about in terms of the, the number of um, European workers that we have working within the industry. But. But my, my take on where they've gone is actually there's a lot of them that have gone into retail. And, and if you think back to that massive switch in March, April last year, when you know all the delivery services went significantly up, they were recruiting thousands of drivers. I can't remember the number, was it Tesco recruited 50,000 short-term staff in, in April and actually kept most of them on. Um, you, you can sort of see where that shift's gone. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's there's a chance that some of those European workers will start coming back when when borders reopen, or, or yeah, well, when borders reopen, if that's May or, or slightly later. I guess there's always a risk that actually when the borders open, we see more people, you know, go home again because that article talks a lot about how those people that have gone home have realised they've gone to different places than they left five, ten years ago, and actually. Let, let's go back and, and stay with the family. So I, I think there's there, there's a long-term sort of risk here in terms of um, labour availability. And it sort of plays back to my earlier point, doesn't it? Is, you know, if if you're 
if you're in the food service industry, I was talking to our, um, our, our sort of executive chef this morning about this very article, um, because actually he, he used to work in service and, and in, in his days in service that, you know, he'd be doing 12, 14, 16 hours a day, five, six, seven days a week. You'd, you'd have your evenings, your weekends, your Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sundays, your busiest days. And actually, if you've come out of that industry and you've been furloughed and you've suddenly discovered spending time with the family and not having to work ridiculously long hours, it, it might be difficult for some people to go back into that into that way of life. Some people are born into it. Some people might not appreciate that pressure on time and and, and shift work. So, um, yeah, I, I think... Um, it, it's going to be really challenging in terms of labour availability moving forward. Andy, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. No, thank you. It's been uh, a challenging discussion, but um, yeah, educational and enlightening at the same time. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.